Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. If you enjoy binge-watching the best TV shows and love hearing from the actors and showrunners who make them happen, then subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our Hollywood reporters take you behind the scenes of the year's most anticipated projects, the industry's biggest moves, and the hardest-fought awards races. From The Crown to The Real Housewives, we've got the inside scoop. As a special thank you to our still-watching audience, we're offering 15% off a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair. Visit VanityFair.com today and use promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off a yearly digital subscription to everything you want. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favorite podcast? With Progressive, it is. Just visit the Progressive website to quote with all the coverages you want. You'll see Progressive's direct rate, then their tool will provide options from other companies so you can compare. All you need to do is choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company & Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. AI is making waves in every field it touches. President Biden is now on TikTok and the election draws closer each day. With so much going on in the world, it is hard to keep up with it all, let me tell you. Hi, I'm Kai Rizdal, the co-host of Make Me Smart. It's a podcast from Marketplace. And every weekday, Kimberly Adams and I break down the latest in business and the economy with short daily episodes to make it easy for you to stay in the know. Listen to Make Me Smart wherever you get your podcasts. Well, with all due respect, I won't be talking to you about my penis. Hello, and welcome to Still Watching, a weekly television podcast from Vanity Fair. I'm Chris Murphy. This week, we're talking about sex education. Just send her your dick. Shut up. Just send it. Root to tip. Get in the toilet. Have a little work. Okay? It's the final season of the Netflix show that has challenged the way we've seen sex, relationships, and high school on TV. Executive producer Jamie Campbell will be joining us, and yes, there will be season four spoilers ahead. Consider yourself warned. Agents, for goodness sakes, just tell them you're a sex therapist! Yes, I am. Okay. Okay. I'm gonna start again. (laughs) I am a student sex therapist. In Sex Education, we've watched the story of Wonderkin sex therapist Otis Milburn follow in his mother's footsteps and become his school's go-to sex therapist. Well, actually, Mum, it's my first day at the new school, remember? What, today? Uh-huh. Oh, I totally forgot. Yeah, I should get going. But now, at his new colorful school of the future, Cavendish College, he seems to have met his match with O, a rival sex therapist who is already established on campus. Hi, welcome. Please take a seat. Uh, how can I help you? Sorry, I'm, I'm looking for O. There is no need to apologize. Many women struggle to reach orgasm. Please, take a seat. No, O, the other sex therapist? Maeve, his former business partner and now girlfriend, is in the U.S. on a writing scholarship. But it gets cut short when there is drama back in the U.K. Where's my mum? Take a seat and we can have a chat. No, I don't want to sit down. Wait, what are you doing? Get up. Sure. Loser, get up. Get sit down. Sit down. Meanwhile, the cast of characters, largely last seen in the Barbie movie, wrestle with their sexuality in high school. So I started taking testosterone six months ago, and the doctor warned me it could feel like a second puberty. But now I'm horny all the time. Like, everything turns me on. A lot more happens, and we're going to get into it with executive producer Jamie Campbell, who's been working on sex education since the start of the show. 
And just a note, this interview was conducted in accordance with the WGA and SAG-AFTRA strike rules. Enjoy the conversation. I am a huge fan of sex education. It feels like given the subject matter of teens and sex and teens having sex, We see that in such a specific way on the show. I could see how it would be tricky to get the show greenlit at the beginning. Well, the thing that I was always absolutely convinced of, um, and and you reach a certain point in the development process where this becomes a tension and and it either allows you to keep going or eventually you, you give up. The thing that I was absolutely sure of was that the script was just knockout, that Laurie Nunn had had conceived of something uh, and uh, and executed it in a way which was different from anything else that I'd seen. And it was quite interesting to um, be part of the process of sharing that script with commissioners um, in the UK and in the US and, uh, I mean, around the world as well, um, to hear their reactions. Because I think only a very few of those commissioners and... um, I'm talking about maybe 20 to 30 uh, who we pitched it to, understood what Laurie was was conceiving and uh, and what her vision was. So and that's, a, that's also a very normal part of the process of pitching to a broadcaster, that they tend to have their own demographic that they need to serve. And they're often trying to move your creative vision to coalesce with theirs in a way which sometimes has synthesis and it sometimes doesn't. And this was a very particular proposition. So, um, yeah, we really needed the right partner. I I want to jump into the end of season three going into season four because you sort of painted yourself into a corner with Mordale shutting down. And it seemed pretty clear where the series had to go. There was also a lot of cast turnover from season three to season four. Were you worried about that at all? Did you know exactly where the series was headed or how it was going to end? Or was there a moment of fright? Well, the thing is, you can never, uh, unless you're in the kind of hyper-fortunate situation where the broadcaster greenlights more than one series at a time, you're always hedging your bets. And that's that can be uh, problematic for the writing team because they have to, uh, and Laurie particularly uh, in this case, had, had to conceive of season arcs and season endings which would be satisfying but would also keep the door open for the following season and actually that thing that you that you referred to which was the, the closing down of Mordale, was a kind of coincidence of where Laurie wanted to take it creatively but also we had to slightly hedge our bets because we were using a location that has since been demolished there was a chance that it wouldn't be demolished and that we would uh, be able to keep using it um, and we knew at the beginning of season three that that was a jeopardy that we were going to face. Um, and, and we could take the risk in either direction. So Laurie decided at a, an early point in the script writing process for season three that we would script towards the school closing. And actually, I really like that direction because I think there's something about the evolution of a show like this where you're, you don't allow yourself as the, as the producers and the makers of it and hopefully don't let the audience fall into a kind of format rut. So sort of keeping on your toes, if you like, is, is I think, quite a good philosophy. So, so we all agreed that that was a good direction to go in. And, um, and I think that's borne out in season four, because although a lot of the um, key characters are back, in fact, almost all of them are, are, are back in this season, there are some big old changes. Like we, we've set up two significant new precincts 
brought in quite a few new characters and the world has become even more inclusive in lots of different ways. And so, um, yeah, that, that was, that was a really interesting creative and practical decision. Um, and I'm, I'm glad that I'm glad that we did that to be honest. I'd love to know before we move on to Cavendish college, why was the Moordale location demolished? Like, what happened? It was nothing to do with us, I hope. Uh, no, it was, a, it was a developer who'd had eyes on that building, which used to be uh, a campus of the University of South Wales, which sadly had had to close its doors. I think the, the majority of the campus was used for film studies as well, which is sort of particularly sad that it had to close. And then, that, I mean, the, the fact that it had closed enabled us to use it as a as a location and as, as a set. And as a campus, it was quite an incredible place to film. It was called the Kelleon Campus um, near Newport in Wales. And because everything was in one place, you'd literally go into this enormous campus. Um, there was the school that you see in the show. But then there were huge offices that we could use for the production. Then there was um, a really big sports hall, which is where we set up the sets. So um, the in, the interiors of almost all of the bedrooms, the interiors of Gene and Otis's house. So um, it, it really was an incredible place to shoot. Uh, but 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 actually, it has a downside too because when everything is so convenient like that, it can have an impact on the way that you schedule things. Because you feel, oh, we can come back to that next week. We can, you know, just pop into the sports hall and pick up a couple more days in Gene and Otis's house. Whereas if you're if you're under a bit more pressure, it has some disadvantages, but then um, it, it it can also it can also have benefits. Let's get into season four. And as you already said, we transfer from Moordale to Cavendish College, which is completely upside down from Moordale. It's it's more inclusive, it's modern, it's queer as hell, it's colorful, and the social strata gets flipped on its head with the cool kids, the rubies, sort of like at the bottom of the uh, of the social strata, and then Eric and our new friends in the coven at the top. Uh, so can you talk a bit about introducing uh, Cavendish College and the reason for the flip in social status? And then also how you went about introducing these really great, unapologetically queer and trans new characters. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm going to tread carefully just in terms of the vision for the writing around the, the coven, because that's something that Laurie's covered in a lot of detail, something that's really close to her heart. And, and I love what we've done there. I think it, it feels incredibly fresh in terms of the depiction of characters and people that we don't often see on screen. And, and I would say actually around the, um, the intimate scenes between some of those characters without spoiling any of it is, I think, compelling and extraordinary um, to see that on screen. And, and I think we've, we've all been very privileged to be part of that process. And actually just on that, from a production point of view, one thing that's been almost like a sort of sub-narrative of the production process this season has been the way that actors have applied for the trans roles. And when I, and when I say that, what I mean is that um, we did auditions for um, a couple of trans characters in the past. And the truth was, and I'm talking about the UK, that there was very little take up uh, in terms of auditions. There were mostly non-acting trans people who came forward and were excited about playing their first role on screen. So it was quite a limited number of people. This is, I'm talking about three, four years ago. The audition process on season four 
for the trans characters was very, very different. There were tens of thousands of people that came forward. And again, I'm talking about the UK. So that was really exciting because I think it said something about our society in general, but it was also exciting because the actual, the technical proficiency and excellence in general of the trans actors that came forward was just in a totally different league. And there was something, and I think there is something, that trans actors, when they're playing trans roles, bring to the screen, which is very unique in the sense that it's based on a very palpable lived experience. And there's a rawness to the performances. So I think that's, I think that's, I, I, I'm obviously generalizing, um, but I think that's certainly what we experienced this season. Yeah, I would say there's an authenticity there, right? It feels lived in. And it does feel, I mean, it, it makes sense, and it sort of mirrors the arc of the series in terms of Mordale going from super conservative to this sort of liberal, inclusive bastion, uh, that there would be, you know, less trans actors who were able to audition four seasons ago, you know, during season one. And now, four seasons later, you've got tens of thousands <laughs> of trans actors auditioning for season four. So it's kind of a nice parallel to the series. Yeah, I think that's right. And and to go back to your earlier question just about what the what the kind of narrative reason was for creating this new energy uh, at Cavendish College, what we were interested in was firstly putting our main characters from Mordale out of their depth, um, sort of little fish in a bigger pool. And we just liked the idea of putting them under pressure in that sense. But then there was something probably more important than that thematically, which was around the notion that our characters, and this is almost a kind of emblem of the show in general, are reasonably progressive. Like the characters are progressive um, that we that we know. They're pretty progressive. But Cavendish is much, much more progressive than any of those characters. And so that gap in the kind of perception of the way that the world could be, we thought would be really interesting to play with and also creates a sort of self-aware quality, I think, which is almost in the warmest way a kind of nod and wink to the audience who I think are also aware that the show is deals with themes in a unique but certainly very progressive way. So putting those two groups together and in conflict some of the time, um, I mean particularly Otis when he arrives at the school and finds a serious antagonist in the therapist that already exists in the campus, all of that felt very dramatically rich. I want to go back to what you said about the fish out of water concept of it all and pivot a little bit to Maeve, who is off in America at Wallace and has her own antagonist in Dan Levy, who is just uh, deliciously awful as her tutor. <laughs> I, I love what sex education has done with taking actors that we like implicitly love, like Jemima Kirk uh, from last season, season three, as Hope, the headmaster of Moordale, and now Dan Levy in season four, and making them absolutely terrible. Uh, can you talk about that? Like, Is that intentional that you just pick these actors that we've grown to love from their previous projects and flip our perception of them on its head? Well, that, it's, an, it's a really interesting insight there that you've raised which the show doesn't have many antagonists and i suppose mr groff headmaster groff was an antagonist and certainly hope um, the headmaster that came along in, in series three was an antagonist and yeah dan levy's character malloy is definitely an antagonist to mave yeah that, that was an important continued obstacle 
that character for Maeve, who is clearly incredibly talented, but faces a lot of kind of systemic issues in order to get what she wants. And so we felt that placing a Dan Levy-sized obstacle uh, in her path would be really fun. And I think Dan comes to the role with a lot of gravitas and he's quite sort of intimidating and some of the character is is quite, Dan is not at all intimidating. And I think almost embodies the things that, to the extent that Maeve fears things in the external world, embodies that. But Dan, I would just say, I, we felt incredibly fortunate that he decided to do the show. You know, he, he had declared that he was a fan of the show, I think after season three. And we weren't shy of exploiting his fandom. And, uh, and, and so we got in touch and he was such an incredible collaborator, I have to say, because he's coming to the process with a lot of ex his own experience. But I would say he's amongst the most um, humble people I've ever seen on a set in, in any department. You know, he, he came on, he was incredibly collaborative, so respectful, um, and ended up doing just such a beautiful job. Uh, and and what I what I love about what he's delivered is that it is, you know, probably very different from how people have seen him on screen before. Yeah, that performance that Dan Levy delivered was not what I expected. <laughs> but speaking of not expecting things, you know, the show is obviously so much about sex, and sex is at the forefront of every season, and it definitely plays a role in the season. But we definitely go down different paths and avenues and diverge from that central topic in season four m way more than we ever have before. Uh, one of my favorite uh, pathways is Eric's storyline about religion, which I would love to delve into. It's just so interesting because sex and religion are often discussed at the same time. They're often at odds. There's a lot of overlap there, and it's usually not good overlap. So can you talk about that decision to take Eric's storyline in that direction? Um, yes, I'll do my best. It's so complicated, I think, but it's also something that a lot of people relate to. And, and I certainly relate to the storyline. I, I used to be an evangelical Christian in my late teens and early twenties. And, um, I didn't have sex myself until my twenties. And, and so I had a big, and that was really for religious reasons. And, and, um, so the, the conversation about the relationship between religion and sex is, I mean, definitely personal for me, but I would say compared with Eric's obstacles to finding religious faith alongside sex, I mean, he's got so many things that are going on uh, as a character that are complicated and deep and thorny. And so, you know, it, it, in many ways, it, it is quite obviously a rich, dramatic area to explore. But I think there's something else without without sort of being too deep about it. But but I think that there is something about a lot of the storylines in the show, which is about an imagined journey, and we we're setting up a world which um, is obviously idyllic in some ways, and where we're giving all of our characters a lot of leeway, if you like, the benefit of the doubt, even if they present in ways which are a bit problematic. We. Um, kindness is a sort of a really key word for this show. And I think that religious belief obviously is a, a kind of imaginative journey to some extent as well. And so finding that kind of place on the, on the Venn diagram where Eric can feel comfortable in his own version of religious faith and comfortable in his relationships 
all of that, even as I'm saying it, what a, what a complicated journey to go on. But it's so it's so dramatic. And I would say that Shuti uh, has delivered something. He's delivered something extraordinary this season. And I'm really hoping that it will resonate with a lot of people. Yeah, his performance is really phenomenal. And there's a little bit, I know uh, Shuti was recently cast as Doctor Who, and I felt that there's a little bit of that uh, in there towards the end of the season uh, and his religion arc in terms of like the expansion and the dreams and the astral projection of it all, if you will, in regards to his relationship with God. I, I thought it was really cool and very interesting. I think that's interesting. I hadn't thought of that parallel. But, or, or definitely not of astral projection. Um, but I know I know what you mean. There's something that that goes from a, from a kind of religious point of view takes you into a kind of not magic realist uh, mode, but it it certainly becomes heightened in a slightly unexpected way. But I hadn't I, ha- I hadn't made that um, that parallel with Doctor Who, and and it reminds me that we also Laurie wrote a storyline about Maeve's fascination with the Bronte sisters, which weirdly then overlapped with the movie that Emma Mackey, who plays Maeve, was doing about Emily Bronte. And so it's quite fun, actually, to watch her movie alongside this season because there are some totally unintentional parallels which the universe have brought us. Still Watching will be back in just a moment, and when we return, more with Sex Education's executive producer, Jamie Campbell. I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go. There's a host, a guest, and a light Q&A. But on Wildcard, we have ripped up the typical script. It's a new podcast from NPR where I invite actors, artists, and comedians to play a game using a special deck of cards to talk about some of life's biggest questions. Listen to Wildcard wherever you get your podcasts. Only from NPR. Uh, There are also other avenues and other topics that have played a a more central role this season. Uh, Disability rights and the topic of ableism at Cavendish College. Uh, uh, What was so interesting about that is, like, yes, you have this progressive place and everybody gets their own water bottle and they get to do yoga and they have sound baths and it's all supposed to be this utopia and yet it's still ableist. And... (laughs) The actual fundamental things that certain people need to get around and go to class don't actually work. So uh, can you talk about um, shining a light on ableism this season as well? Yeah, I'll try to. I mean, I think it's it's a reflection of the real world. And I'll give an example of that, which is that Eleven is the production company that makes sex education. And it's a number of years that we've been trying to find a way um, with the company that manages the building that our offices are based in to um, to make it fully accessible. And it is not. And it's a very challenging process. And um, that storyline resonates for that reason um, with us as a company and some of the, the sort of uh, battles we've had in that respect. And I think it will relate very broadly. But one thing I really love about it, again, without giving too much away, is that it's a moment where Isaac finds a power. There's a superpower that allows him really to change the fortunes of the school halfway through the season. Uh, And everyone follows him and uh, is inspired by his vision. And again, I, I, I just think in the depiction of disabled people on screen, we wanted to try and do something that was 
moving that conversation on. That representation matters. I feel like this is happening more and more as shows get more inclusive and we're seeing more slices of life that we don't normally see on television and we're getting to see topics that we don't normally see that sometimes series feel like PSAs these days. And I, I really commend sex education for not feeling like a PSA, really. Me me too, me too, me too. But on the on the um on 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 the Isaac point, it's a depiction of a, a rounded character who behaves in a way which is morally questionable some of the time. And that's absolutely as it should be. That's the way human beings behave and non-disabled people behave in the same way. And so I think that's really important. And one of the interesting side effects, which is not a positive side effect of that narrative and that, that storyline for Isaac is the vitriol that, that that character has faced online. And it's worth having a look at because it's it's just embarrassing. And it's it's not fundamentally around the character necessarily. It's It's around the fact that the character is disabled and in a wheelchair. You, you don't really need much more of a kind of emblem of why social media is toxic and you should immediately leave it than the comments that are made about that character. I was unaware, and that seems so crazy, but that is social media and people are categorically insane. Uh, well, I look forward to you leaving um, all your platforms by the end of the day, Chris, so uh, we'll, we'll check in on that. Speaking of Isaac, you know, we have Isaac and Maeve and... There is really um, a sort of intense, heavy, but also wonderful episode about halfway through the season that sort of deals with them and centers around tragedy, right? Uh, there's a funeral that happens, and we see some characters that we haven't seen the entire season come back. And we also see sort of the whole cast together, which we also don't see that often in the show, which I, I have to imagine that filming that episode of those scenes were pretty emotional. What was it like filming that? You're talking about episode six, which was directed by Alyssa McClelland. And you're right that we, we felt that there was something special that would emerge in bringing the group back together in a confined space where something unexpected had happened. As you say, it's a funeral, but it, all of the characters are coming into that room with quite different agendas. Obviously, some of it is around the person that's died, but there are a number of the characters who are there with um, very different things on their on their mind. I mean, my experience on this show is that there is, in each season's shoot, a kind of um, uh, there's a kind of expectation and anticipation anticipation that builds as. Uh, some of the main cast get into their meteor scenes as the as the schedule goes on, um, but we haven't had many we haven't had many scenes where so many of the main characters are in a single space for the amount of time that we devote to it in, in um, episode six. And um, so, to answer your question, I mean, there was there was some pressure on that scene. You know, there were some actors who were not in the rest of the season, who were coming back specifically for that scene. Um, and uh, so Racky Thackroff, for example, and Jim Howick um, are, are not in the rest of the season and are, and are there for the funeral with explosive effect. Joe Wilkinson comes back for that, uh, for that scene. And it's a kind of reuniting of a community. And it's, it's incredibly moving. And, um, it's it's definitely 
uh, one of our more striking episodes. Um, it breaks the form of some of the other episodes, and it's um, it was emotional to film. And I would say there are some conversations which, um, you know, there is a conversation that happens between Eric and Adam in that scene, which had an awful lot of pressure on it because not just, not just, um, the responsibility on Laurie's shoulders for delivering something that would articulate a relationship, um, and the end of a relationship and the way that that relationship could evolve. Um, to do all that in a in a nuanced and weighty way, I'm still finding it really hard mm. uh, to be to be fully out. Mm. When did you stop feeling ashamed? Oh, it's a, it's a long road, mm. Adam. You have to believe that you deserve good things, and Adam. You have to love yourself. Mm -hmm. But of course, both Shooty and Connor, um, playing Eric and Adam, came to that scene also with a lot of expectation on it and wanting to make sure that this relationship, which had been a pivotal part of both of their experiences as actors in the first three seasons, and came with so much baggage that it would be expressed in a way which was responsible to the characters, uh, and was responsible to the audience and said everything that we wanted it to say. And I would say that that, of course, you, you end a process like that um, where a lot of pressure is put on a scene and, you know, it's never going to be perfect. But I would say that um, it, it, in the end, I think we'll look back at that scene and the collaboration that went towards sculpting it um, and feel I certainly will feel, and I, and I do feel at the moment that it, that it has created something beautiful and and fitting for that relationship. Yeah, that funeral scene with Eric and Adam, it was really emotionally uh, moving. It was it felt satisfying to me as someone who was deeply invested in their relationship for the course of the series. It, it really resonated with me. Uh, yeah, just on that, I saw that Shuti had um, said in an interview a week or so ago he was just sort of giving a shout out to Laurie for the way she had created um, Eric. Um, you know, Laurie famously is not a, a young black man. And, you know, she takes, again, really it's for her to speak about, but, she, but I would say in the experience of collaborating with her and working with her that um, she takes that responsibility incredibly seriously of depicting um, the very kind of wide range of characters in this show. Um, as well as is possible to do. And actually Shuti's collaboration on the character in general and and definitely that scene this season was a really key thing for Laurie to to draw on and to channel into the creation of it. And I think she I think she's done a quite incredible job, as have Shuti and um, and Connor. Speaking of Shuti and Connor, they had a big summer, as did the rest of the cast in regards to the Barbie movie, <laughs> the biggest movie of all time. Greta Gerwig must be seriously obsessed with sex education as she cast basically like half of the series regulars. And now they're all blasting off into movie stardom because of Barbie. Yeah, it's, we've got a real, I've got a real kick out of seeing that. And I remember, um, having supper with Emma and Connor in Los Angeles around the time that they had just started filming 
and then just talking sort of so casually about, you know, what Ryan had been chatting with them about today and, you know, how Will Farrell had just been such a big fan of Connor's work on set and, uh, you know, just so casual, this, this sort of stuff. So, but, but done with the utmost humility and, um, and I, and having seen Barbie, um, I mean, I just love his performance. I, I, you know, I don't know Will Ferrell, but I sort of feel like Connor is um, going toe to toe with him in their scenes in a in a great way. So I, I I felt very very proud of all of them. Jamie, thank you so much for joining us on Still Watching. It's just um, such a pleasure to chat about it with you, Chris, and thanks for uh, for having me on. So that's it for this episode of Still Watching. Please send us your questions, your comments, your concerns, and email us at stillwatchingpod at gmail.com or find me on social media at Chris Triss. This has been Still Watching from Vanity Fair. Our producer is Emily Elias, and we had production help from Peyton Hayes. We had technical assistance from Gintis Norvia. Stephen Valentino is our executive producer. Our theme music is by Alexis Quadrado. We'll be back next Thursday with a new episode. Looking forward to seeing you then. Hi, I'm Michael Calori, the co-host of Wired's Gadget Lab. And I'm Lauren Good, the other co-host of Wired's Gadget Lab. Get ready to dive deep into the cultural phenomenon that's been shaping conversations, sparking movements, and breaking barriers for over a decade. The new three-part docuseries, Black Twitter, A People's History, based on the groundbreaking Wired cover story by Jason Parham, explores everything from the fun, games, and inside jokes that characterize the early years of Black Twitter, to the social movements, the voices and the hashtags that made Black Twitter an influential force in nearly every aspect of American political culture. Join us as we unravel the threads of this digital community, tracing its origins, celebrating its triumphs, and exploring its impact on society at large. Watch the series from Onyx Collective in association with Wired Studios, premiering on Hulu on May 9th.